4, Romans chapter 4 in our Bibles this morning. And for those that are with us on a regular basis, uh, let me just say that we have come uh, in our study of the book of Matthew to the place of moving into uh, a new major section of the book as we have finished chapter 12 and are headed into chapter 13. But as I was looking ahead, next Lord's Day will be Mother's Day, and we will have uh, an emphasis on the family then and at least uh, one week after that. And so I started to really just seek the Lord's mind for what he would have as kind of a standalone (coughs) emphasis this morning. And what my mind kept gravitating to as what the Lord would have for us is really kind of a spin-off uh, discussion of some recent teaching in a Bible class here at Easley Christian School. Um, I spent uh, five days, I think, with uh, our 7th through 10th grade uh, students as the seniors and sponsors were gone on their senior trip. And I had that opportunity to explore with them what the Bible has to say about the nature of a saving faith. What are the qualities of a faith that brings a man into a right relationship with God? And we're going to spend time in chapter 4, but I I do want you just to look up to chapter 3 and verse 28. If you look there, you can see that a man is justified. And that is, that is a word for declared and regarded as righteous, or uh, regarded as right with God. How does a man become right with God? Well, he becomes right with God, as you can see in verse 28, by faith and not by the deeds of the law. And, and that phrase, the deeds or the works of the law, had particular relevance to the Jews' religion in Paul's day. And we could think about some of the works of the law for the Jew. But today the application for us would be that a man is made right with God by faith alone apart from baptism, apart from confirmation, apart from charitable contributions to the church, apart from your good works in total, kind of outweighing your bad works in total, and, and so on. A man is declared right with God by faith apart from anything. And while Paul stated that truth directly in chapter 3, in chapter 4 he illustrates that truth by pointing to a couple key figures in Israel's past. And the first one mentioned in verse number 1 is Abraham who is the father of the Jewish race. And I want you to look in particular at verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham did what? He believed God, and what happened? It was counted unto him for righteousness. It was credited to his account. That faith, as it were, were credited to his account as all that was needed to make him right with God. Righteous in the sight of God. And the rest of the chapter goes on to argue that uh, the way it was with Abraham, 
is the way it has to be with every man. And while all of that is, again, straightforward, several years ago, I received an email from a new believer that said, Pastor Fuller, I just read James 2.24. And then she quoted to me, You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now I'm continuing on from that email. Until I read that, I thought you could only be saved through faith and not by works. So I guess reading that confused me a little bit. Is it a mixture of faith and works or faith alone? And that's really what I want to look at this morning. Abraham, was he justified by faith or by works or by both? And you might be aware of uh, the fact that it can actually get even even more pointed in terms of uh, the tension between Romans and James. The contradiction seeming can get even more significant. And so I want to have you keep your finger, and I was thinking about this. For those of you that bring your Bibles, you can keep your finger. For those of you that are doing it on your electronic devices, I'm not sure what you're going to do with the rest of what I'm going to say. <clears throat> All right? I want you to, if you have your Bible, keep your finger in Romans 4 because we're going to be right back. But I do want to have us turn to James chapter 2, <clears throat> and I'd love for you to get both of those open at the same time. And I'm sure that some of you with your devices are way more adept at making all that happen. And, and so you can just have them both right there. <clears throat> when you get there, and when you get to James 2, and you have your finger in both places, all right, I want to I wanna have you look at James 2 and verse 21. James 2 and verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by what? Justified by works. Now flip back to Romans 4 and verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. So again, the point of these verses in Romans is that Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith. But James directly says that Abraham was justified by works. And in addition to that seeming contradiction, look at right here still in Romans 4, in verse 5. Now, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him which just, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now look at James 2 and verse number 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So in Romans 4, Paul says that the faith of a man who works not is what justifies. And James says that it is by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So these verses do represent a seeming contradiction. Right? And the contradiction is not about a small matter. 
This seeming contradiction is right at the heart of the question of how does a man become right with God. When we start to try to figure out what is going on here, we have to start by being reminded that what James wrote and, Paul, and what Paul wrote, they did not write on their own. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of who? Of God. So God is the source of all scripture. Um, 2 Peter teaches us that the Holy Spirit guided these men in such a way that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. There is no part of the scripture that is simply any man's idea. But what we have in the scripture is the very word of God. So though we talk about Paul in Romans and we talk about James writing James, we have to also recognize that those men were superintended by the Holy Spirit to give us exactly what God himself wanted us to have. This is the word of God in total. So on that foundation, we have to conclude that whatever you know, problem there might be reconciling these statements is not that God is conflicted. Right? I just have to conclude, even by faith, that I'm the one missing something. There's something I need to know. And the first truth that I would suggest that we need to know that is going to go a long way in helping us resolve the tension is to realize that God used Paul and James to correct different errors. Right? And this isn't going to be the all the the sum total of the answer, all right? But this is taking us a step in the direction to recognize that God used Paul and James to correct different errors. Paul in Romans is battling against the error that salvation can be in any way earned, merited, gained, that it could be received by good works. Okay, that is the error of the Pharisaism that Paul himself grew up in. There was a time he tells us in Philippians 3 that what he thought was gained before God is that he was born in Israel, that he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, that in his home they were Hebrew-speaking, Hebrew-living Jews, not assimilated into the Greek culture. And he was circumcised even on the eighth day. He talked about his religious heritage, and then he went on to talk about his religious achievements. Paul thought that if he could just keep piling up the efforts to please God one on top of another, that he would ultimately have enough to earn his standing with God. And now he's writing in Romans under the inspiration of spirit, battling that very mentality that anyone, that any sinner could do enough to make up for his own sin and earn his right standing with God. James, on the other hand, was battling against the air that a man could profess to be a recipient of God's salvation without there being any discernible evidence of it in his life. So, for instance, depending on where you are, are at, I still have James 2 open. And if you're there, you can look at verse number 14. 
James 2 and verse 14 says, What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, and we have a rhetorical question at the end, can faith save him? Or can that kind of faith, can, the, can a faith that is in word only, with no evidence of the work of God in a man's life, changing that life, can, can a faith that is in word only, without God at work in the life, can that kind of faith save? And the obvious answer to that is no. So, so these men are both battling for truth. I mean, they are making some strong statements. Both, if you want to talk about battling, both have, as it were, they have swords. Like they, they're going to go to battle. But as one commentator put, and I heard somebody in a totally different uh, field kind of talking about this, we ought to see these men not as having drawn swords facing each other, but as comrades that are, they have swords drawn, but they are like back to back in the battle and they're facing enemies that are coming from two different directions. And, and the fact is that when you start to think in those kind of terms, Paul and Romans battling the air of somebody thinking they could earn their standing with God. James, on the other hand, battling the air that somebody could claim a relationship with God and there be no evidence of it. When you start to think in those kind of terms, you actually find that there are many places in Paul's writings where we observe him fighting the same enemy that James was. All right? We've been in Romans chapter 4, but would you go to Romans chapter 5? And I want you to see after Romans chapter 4 is the chapter in the Bible. If you want to, if you want to say, where would I go to read about justification by faith? It's chapter 4 of Romans. And chapter 5, he continues on to talk about the blessings of being justified by faith. And the blessings are so significant that you could get to the end of verse 20. And I just want you to pick up the second half of verse 20 because it's a verse, it's a phrase that we all know. That God's grace in justifying men by faith is so significant that at the end of verse 20, where sin abounded, what? Grace did much more abound. That is an incredibly marvelous truth that all of us have really reveled in. But it's a truth that could be abused by misapplying. So in chapter 6, roll right into it, and verse 1, Paul anticipates wrong application, and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is in very clear terms in verse 2. God forbid, may it never be, may that thought never cross your mind. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And in the verses that follow, he teaches that one of the effects of, of our union with Christ, our being baptized in verse 3 into union with Christ, is so that at the end of verse 4, we actually walk in the newness of life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He's talking about that here. The, the point is that God's grace and salvation doesn't just deliver us from hell. It makes a difference in the way we live. 
And you can come down to verses 16 to 18. This is probably as clear as any in just marking off that your actions actually reveal who your master is. Notice in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. So you can see he's saying, before you were saved, what was your master? Before you were saved, sin was your master. But now that you are saved, the rule of sin over you has been broken and you have a new master and now righteousness is the prevailing pattern of your life instead of sin. So right after justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law, you can tell when God is really the master of that life. I won't have you now turn to the book of Galatians, but that's another book that Paul penned that and it's a book in which he's battling almost exclusively against the view that, that any works of any kind contribute to saving a man. But in chapter 5, he does give a list of sinful works of the flesh, and he says that the people who do those shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He makes almost the same kind of statements in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians, and I do want to have you go to Ephesians. If you will, just go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start in the very familiar words of verses 8 and 9. And most of you could quote it. In fact, I don't mind if you do quote it. You want to quote it with me? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But now go to chapter 5. Right in this same book, chapter 5 and verse 5, into verse number 6. This ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. What's that talking about? There are people who will say, I'm a Christian, but their lives are yielded to immorality. And he says, let no man deceive you. There is no man who is saved by grace through faith in Christ whose life is surrendered to immorality. And he finishes up, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. That's the truth. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own self. So there is Paul in 2 Corinthians saying, examine yourself whether you're in the faith. And here is James in James chapter 2. You say you have faith, but what kind of faith do you have? Okay, and my point again in bringing... All of that up is just to show that Paul would have not, like, if you, if you had gone to Paul and, you know, you had just heard James preach, and James said, then you profess you have faith, and there's no evidence of God at work, 
What kind of faith do you really have? Whatever it is, it's not the saving variety. In fact, even Abraham was justified by works. And, and you ran to Paul and you said, Paul, I can't believe what James is preaching. It's heresy over there he's preaching. Okay, Paul would have said, now calm down, calm down, calm down. I agree with James. I want to tell you this. I agree with him that if a man just says he has something and there's no evidence of God at work, that guy's got a dead faith. Whatever it is, it's not a saving one. Okay, Paul emphasized the same truth James did. And that truth is that salvation makes a discernible difference in a man's life. And I can even go to church history. Martin Luther, many of you would know his story. In the Reformation, he proclaimed justification by faith alone and did so perhaps more than any other man, and he did so at the risk of his life. I mean, he was public, he literally was public enemy number one by the state. But the man who proclaimed justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone more than any other, he still said this, listen, about justifying faith. He said, oh, it is a living, quick, mighty thing, this faith, so that it is impossible, but that it should do all good things. In fact, it does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it does them and is always doing them. He who does not do these good works is a man without faith. Yea, it is impossible to separate works from faith as impossible to separate burning and shining from fire. So he says, look, when a man has the real thing, a real saving, justifying faith, he doesn't even sit around trying to figure out what works do I have to do. But that faith is so at real in him that he does them. Why? Because there's real life there. So in Romans 4, Paul is teaching how a man receives God's salvation by faith alone, apart from works. In James 2, James is teaching that God's salvation is always demonstrated in a man's life by good works. So Romans 4 and James 2 are working together to confront different errors. A second truth. Within the text of, uh, of James, and that's where you want to go, James chapter 2, a second truth helps us to resolve the tension, and this one I want to try to display to you before I state it. All right, so James chapter 2, and I want you to look back at verse 21 again and note when it says that Abraham was justified by works. James 2 and verse 21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he did what? You see it there? This, this is really important. When he... I'm still not... I, I, I'd, be glad, I'd be glad for you to shout it rather than to wonder if you're there. Don't shout it, but just... When he did what? Okay, when he offered Isaac. So, so listen. When Abraham was getting ready to slay his own son on the altar in obedience to God's instruction that that required an amazing display of faith and I even just bring this up right now do do you remember what Abraham believed what was Abraham thinking and I don't know how I missed this for so many years but so for so many years I wondered what was possibly going through Abraham's mind when he is bringing that sword down to slay his son 
And by the way, that son of his is like 18 years old. You do the chronology in Genesis. I mean, he's a big, young man. What is Abraham thinking at that point? And Hebrews 11 tells us what he's thinking. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, accounting that God was able to raise him up from the dead. So Abraham was thinking, if God has me to go through with this and to kill my own 18-year-old son, God is able to raise that boy up from the dead. So his faith was put to the test in a dramatic fashion. He, and, and I mean, he passed that test. And when he passed that test, he demonstrated that he had a real lively what? <laughs> he had a real faith. Now, do you know what chapter in Genesis records that? What chapter in Genesis t- records Abraham preparing to slay Isaac on the altar? If you don't know it right offhand, you may have a note in your margin, maybe your Bible publishers, maybe you've been through it before. If you don't, you want to put Genesis 22. And, and you want to keep that in mind because we're going to return to that observation. It's Genesis 22. But before we even can make all of what we need to make of that observation... We want to note the explanation James gives of the way Abraham was justified by works. Because this is also important. In verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works. Right? So you can, if he was talking to us, he might just back up and say, look, you can see. I, I think you can see from this incident in Abraham's life that his faith and his actions were working together. I mean, look at what he's prepared to do. That's obviously a demonstration of faith. And the verb tense, which is imperfect, indicates that this is an ongoing reality. So this particular incident that we all are able to read about now, of Abraham ready to slay Isaac, that is a monumental example of what had been going on in Abraham's life now for years. Abraham's faith and his actions for some time previous to this were working together, and this incident is another illustration of that fact. And in addition to that, continuing on in verse 22, notice, and by works was faith made perfect. So made perfect means to be brought to maturity. So Abraham's faith was not something less than genuine before the Isaac on the altar incident, but his obedience in that area uh, and, and in that test actually strengthened his already existing faith. Abraham had been making steps of faith for some time. When he got to this place, it demonstrated he had the real thing, and it even strengthened that faith even more. It brought it to greater maturity. It let everybody see his faith and actions were working together. It strengthened that faith. And then verse 23 starts with and to indicate here's another result of Abraham's great display of faith. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. So this act, Isaac on the altar, filled up 
with significance an earlier statement of Scripture about him. There was an earlier statement of Scripture that said Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. Now, do you know where in the book of Genesis we read that? Where in Genesis do we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, credited to his account? Then again, if you can't remember without looking, you might have a marginal note. I'm starting to hear it. And I'll help you answer it. And that statement is made in Genesis 15 and verse, even verse 6, all right? In Genesis 15, Abraham was still childless late in life. And God told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. How can that be when both myself and my wife are very far along in years? But instead of looking at his own body, later we're going to hear, now dead, he believed God, and God on that account, on account of Abraham's faith in his promise, considered Abraham as righteous before him. Now, here's why I'm having us note those references back in Genesis. Because all of that's recorded in Genesis 15. But what chapter, again, does, does James cite when he talks about Isaac and the altar? That's Genesis 22. And without walking all the way back through Genesis right now, I just want to point out but that between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, there's a period of 30 years. It's actually 30 years. So 30 years before Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, God had already declared Abraham as what? As righteous before him. Now, if all of that's been hard to... Follow, and I wouldn't blame you if you say that is hard to follow. I would just say this. Abraham was saved by faith in the promise of God in Genesis 15. Abraham was saved by faith in the promise of God in Genesis 15. But 30 years later, at a time of great testing in his life, when Abraham was prepared to offer Isaac on the altar, his actions in the face of that test revealed the true nature and the life of Abraham's faith. What happened, what happened in Genesis 22, if I could say it this way, and I mean I'm saying it this way because of the scripture, what happened in Genesis 22 was the justification of an already justified man. And, and the truth that emerges in part from this comparison is that Paul and James were using the terms, the same term, justification, they were using it with slightly different nuances. Okay, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is speaking of justification in kind of a legal sense where a judge 
pronounces a verdict and declares the man on trial as either guilty or acquitted. And in Abraham's case, a guilty sinner is declared righteous in the sight of God because of his faith. In Genesis chapter 15, God pronounced Abraham righteous before him. But James is using the term as we often use it in the sense of demonstrating or vindicating that a course of, of action was wise. Uh, sometimes people will talk about the, the NFL, yes, the NFL draft. The NFL draft happened over the last few days. And they'll talk about what general manager got the draft picks right. And they'll say so-and-so, I can't believe what, that he drafted that person in that round. And then somebody else will say, look, I wouldn't pick at that. You know, they drafted Tom Brady in the what round? Does anybody know? Fifth or sixth round. And I would say that, you know, he's kind of justified his ability to draft. Something like that. It's vindicated in time. That decision ended up being justified. And, and James is using that, the term that way. In Genesis 22, God brought Abraham to a test that showed, really, all to come the genuineness of the faith that he had first responded to 30 years before. And all of that is enough to bring James. Are you still hearing James? Look at James 2 and verse 24. James actually says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. No man is saved by works, but every man with a saving faith demonstrates that faith by good works. And if I just go back to what Luther said, the saved man doesn't sit around figuring out what works I have to do. He just does them. And he does them because he has a relationship with God that has been established by faith. And it's not just that way for a God-fearing Jew like Abraham. You can continue reading. It works the same way in the life of one who was formerly an immoral pagan like Rahab the harlot, verse 25. You just see it. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers sent them out another way. Saving faith is always demonstrated by works which are a natural outgrowth of a relationship with God. And I do want to say to our young people, when we hear this kind of emphasis, it's not, okay, i got to sit around and figure out, i got to sit down and figure out what works I need to do so that mom and dad can think I'm finally saved. Or the pastor will think, I'm really saved. Or, you know, my friends will think that I'm really saved. I mean, what do I have to do? Um, so far, you know, I've said I'm saved, and, and um, no one believes me. 
Again, we've had children in our family. They more would say that to my wife. One of, my wife was putting one of the kids to bed, talking about their need, and, and this actually happened with a couple of them, but one in particular kind of said, why isn't God saving me? And talked and said, I say I'm saved and nobody believes me. <laughs> I said last week, you know, it's a problem when, when a young person in the church wants to get baptized, but the children's church workers think he's a little devil. I mean, that's, we got, we got to disconnect there. And you know what can happen is young people can start to think, okay, well, they're looking for me to do this. So I'm going to make sure I read my Bible every day and I'm going to mark the chart off. And they're looking for me to do this, so I'm going to make sure I do that. And you know what happens? Any of you that have ever been in that situation, you can kind of make it happen for a few days while you're really charged up about it. And then you can't keep it going. You can't keep it going. But you also know the reality when God steps in and does the miracle of transforming you, sometimes it's without any fanfare. It's just, I've been living a lie. My whole life is a lie. I've wanted, I've wanted to look saved, appear saved. I've even wanted to be saved, but I haven't wanted Christ. And you just hit a place where you're like, Take everything else. I don't care about anything else. But I have to have Jesus as my Savior from my sin. And you take him. And you know what? Before long, what's really amazing is not only are other people starting to say, wow, God's done something in that life. But the saved sinner himself or herself starts to know God's done something in me. I'm not the same. I'm not just having to try to perform. God's really at work in my life, and he's real. And, brethren, you know what's remarkable is that sometimes the most difficult trials you face in life may be the greatest opportunity For God himself to demonstrate the reality of your faith. In some cases, God's strengthening you to take a step of obedience that that you thought humanly impossible. I can't even imagine why God would, would would, would make me take that. And yet God brings you to a place where you know God has to do it, or your sunk may minister to your own soul. You're a child of God. I mean, you just see the Spirit of God do through the Word of God in you what you thought you could never do. And you look and say, that was God. That's God. And in many cases, God wants to show even to others around you the reality of a true saving faith. Here's what James is doing. James is saying, look, look at Abraham. God said in Genesis 5 that Abraham was right with him by faith in his promise. 
And I'm telling you that from um, Genesis 15, I'm telling you that from Genesis 15 all the way around for those next 30 years, that faith was real all along and it was working and it was active. But if you're wondering about that, here's a monumental example. Here's a monumental example. It's when he offered Isaac his son on the altar, accounting that God is able to raise him up from the dead. Now, can you see? You can, can't you? It's like James is saying to us, you can. Look, here is the justification of an already justified man. Nobody should have any doubt whether Abraham was truly a man of a real faith. And brethren, when we get to all kinds of crossroads that demand our faith, don't miss the opportunity to let God work in you and God work through you and God show himself through that crisis. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. There will always be evidence of God at work in that life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And perhaps in the quietness of a few moments of personal reflection, there's an opportunity to thank the Lord for more understanding, more clarity. But perhaps for some, there's an opportunity to really just pour out a heart that is just burning inside of you, ready to burst inside of you with concern, perhaps, with thankfulness, perhaps, and just more clarity of what what my need is or what God has done, is doing. And dear friend, what you ought to just at least plead with is that the Lord would do through whatever the crossroads are. They, they could seem big. To other people, they might seem small, but you know you are right at a crossroads of a step of faith. And what you want to just plead with the Lord is, God, show your work in me. Show your work in me.